Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, here in New York City, where the snow is falling, and there's so much to talk about tonight. Uh, I was supposed to have a guest on the podcast this evening. Her name is Katie Stone. Some of you are probably familiar with Katie, a big star in the chess world who has made the transition into poker in the last 10 years or so, and she is now a sponsored professional with Poker Stars New Jersey. The reason she's unable to join me is because she is playing the final table of a big live tournament at the Borgata, where first prize is $43,000. So we are all rooting for you, Katie, and uh, of all the excuses anyone has ever made not to appear on the podcast with me, this one takes the cake. So on this episode, I want to get into... Uh, go back to our review of the World Series of Poker main event coverage uh, that we've been watching together on ESPN. Talk about some of the hands that have been played and uh, particularly focusing. We're at the end of day seven now, so we're going to focus on uh, the chip leader in the tournament and how to play a big stack in the late stages of a major live event. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts about that and I want to get to them. But before we get back into our uh, review of the ESPN coverage, I want to talk about something else that's going on in poker right now. There's a young man named Gordon Veo. Uh, he's under fire right now. The whole story has not come out. So let's start off by saying, in fairness, okay, we haven't heard Gordon's side of the story. A lot of what's been released is the spokespeople for poker stars telling only their side of the story. So it's entirely possible that things could come out quite differently than they appear right now. But assuming that does not happen, things don't look good for Gordon. Now, Gordon Veo is a very, very accomplished tournament poker player, uh, one of the November 9. I don't remember what year it was, but he did quite well in the main event, and he's had a lot of success online and live in the No Limit Hold'em poker tournament scene. Today, of course, we're not going to be talking about Gordon Veo's tournament strategies and how uh, talented he is at actually playing the game, but rather uh, a lawsuit that he filed uh, surrounding a victory that he had in an event that was part of the Poker Stars Spring Championship of Online Poker, also known as Scoop or Scoop. So he wins this Scoop event for almost $700,000, uh, and then Poker Stars doesn't pay him. Poker Stars alleges that the reason he did not get the money that he won in that event was because he did not play the event legally. 
Gordon claimed at the time that he had uh, participated in the event in Canada where it's totally legal to play on on PokerStars and any other online site that I know of. Uh, actually, some of our TPE pros, uh, notably Casey Jarzebek, the big dog, uh, plays in Canada all the time and it's not an issue. The issue comes from PokerStars discovering or allegedly discovering that Gordon Vale was in fact not in Canada, although he claims that he was. Uh, so here's the thing, guys. If you want to try to circumvent the terms of service of a poker website or any website for that matter, uh, you have to know that big companies such as PokerStars have legal teams and have sophisticated security systems in place and they will eventually find out that you were doing what you were doing in this particular case it's been alleged that gordon was in the united states and using a vpn which is technically way above my head but it basically makes a website think that you are some place that you are not virtual something network i'm sure most of you listening know what VPN stands for. So, uh, if one is in the U.S., but he wants to make it appear that he is in Canada, it's possible to do so using something called a VPN. Uh, however, when it comes to actually proving one's whereabouts, then receipts come into play. You know, did you drive into Canada? Do you have your receipt uh, from the toll bridge that you crossed? Is there a stamp on your passport that says you went from the U.S. to Canada on that day? Do you have any evidence to support your claim that you were in Canada? Well, Gordon Veo provided such evidence, and here's where it gets interesting. PokerStars alleges that Veo hired a forger they don't name the forger in the lawsuit, and or at least in the documents that have been released thus far. Uh, here in the United States, for those who are listening in other countries, uh, court matters are presented as public documents in most cases. So anytime anyone in the United States wants to find out the uh, information about a particular lawsuit here in this country, that is typically a matter of public record. So these court filings are something that we can just look up and, and see for ourselves. And that's why you see this all over Poker News and other websites that cover poker goings-on. Anyway, according to some of these uh, filings, a forger was hired by Veo to help him make it appear that he had played this tournament in Canada. Now, I know people who live in the United States, have a second residence in Canada, uh, have an address in Canada, have set up ways for them to be able to play in uh, scoop events or WCOOP events or anytime they want to play online, but they actually have to go to Canada to do so. So these filings show that Veo was not, in fact, in Canada at the time of, of the Scoop tournament he won. 
and that he hired this forger to make it look like he was. Uh, I've seen the documents, and if this is a forgery, it's a really bad one. Basically, there was Gordon Veo, who lives in California, his California bank statement compared with the forged one. And now again, this is evidence being presented by Poker Stars. We don't have the whole story yet. There could be an explanation that escapes me right now as to why uh, these documents are so similar. But if you just replace a few entries from Gordon Veo's actual California bank account uh, and then replace them with a few entries from a Canadian bank account, that's the forgery that's being alleged. Now, uh, this matter is not yet settled. It's an ongoing court battle. Who knows how it all turns out. But as of this recording, November 14th, okay, Poker Stars is countersuing Gordon Veo. So Gordon had sued to try to get the money that he claims he won fair and square in Canada in the scoop event in 2017. Almost $700,000. Now, to fight against paying him, PokerStars had to, uh, you know, assume legal costs and a number of other expenditures associated with, uh, fighting back against what they claim was basically a cheater. I mean, let's face it. If you're on a VPN pretending to be in Canada so that you can, uh, circumvent the Black Friday rule <laughs> that says you can't play on poker stars. You are cheating. I don't see any other way to, to describe it other than cheating. So if Veo was doing that, poker stars is within its rights to countersue for damages and court costs and lawyers fees and a number of other monies that this frivolous, allegedly frivolous lawsuit has caused poker stars to incur now right now the damages being sought by poker stars are at almost three hundred thousand dollars and counting so it's possible that gordon veo took first place in a scoop event and it will cost him well in his mind nine hundred thousand dollars <laughs> so uh, i mean i don't i don't know if it's if it's right to, for me to be laughing about this but yeah, you guys know how I feel about cheating. We talked about Will Kasuf in a previous episode and, and how he was stealing money from his own friend, which I found despicable. Uh, my general thoughts about cheating scandals as they relate to poker and poker players is it just kind of puts a black mark on all of our records unfairly because most poker players that I know are honest and loyal and faithful people that you could actually trust with your last dime. Uh, because most of us care very deeply about our reputations and we wouldn't do anything like this or what Will Kasuf did. Now, again, we don't know for a fact that Gordon Veo is guilty. The, the court battle is ongoing. But with these documents that were released uh, today, I feel that it doesn't look good for Gordon and, it, and therefore it doesn't look good for any of us. Uh, many poker players understandably have a very negative view of poker stars based on certain things that have happened with that company in the last few years. Uh, you know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just visit any video made by Doug Polk in the last three years <laughs> and you'll see what I'm talking about. And because of that, many of us would probably love to see 
poker stars lose a court case against especially an American player such as Gordon Veo for our own selfish reasons and just watching a big company that's kind of done some questionable things to its players lately uh, have to pay a price. I just don't think it appears that from what I've seen today that this case will be that uh, victorious moment for you, me, or anyone else because the evidence of forgery appears to be very strong evidence. With that said, though, uh, I want to show a little bit of the other side. I feel for players who were making their living playing online on Poker Stars. I myself was on Cake Poker at the time of Black Friday. Uh, I had pretty much forsaken Poker Stars after a number of cheating scandals had come out in circa 2004. We're talking ancient history now, but that's my Black Friday history. Uh, at the time, it seemed like uh, a very unfair decision by the U.S. government to suddenly take away everyone's right to play on an international gambling website, PokerStars, and Party Poker, and all of the other sites that were out there, Full Tilt, Ultimate Bet, they were all really big in 2006. Uh, that said, I don't think that we should take the law into our own hands. And so this is what I have a problem with about this story. If, again, it hasn't been proven yet, but if what looks to be true ends up being proven in the court that Gordon Veo actually tried to get around the laws, I think it's pretty despicable. And as I said, it puts a bad mark on all of us. So, you know, look, guys, as we try to grow this game, we want to continue attracting more and more players. We want poker's image to be as uh, a legitimate uh, hobby or a legitimate game. I, I'm trying not to use the word sport, but let's just say it's not good for anyone when these kinds of stories come out. So let's get your thoughts on Gordon Veo. Uh, have you known anyone that used a VPN? Have you ever tried to make it look like you were in a certain place when you were in another place in order to allow yourself to do some gambling that you legally should not have been doing? Uh, I'm interested in your thoughts. You guys can tweet me at Clayton Comic. I love to hear from the listeners of the podcast and look forward to your thoughts on this story and other stories like it. And now, without further ado, let's get uh, back to our coverage. We took a little break from some of this coverage as we've had some guests recently and we've been talking about other hands uh, from other tournaments. But I still want to continue talking about uh, ESPN's coverage of the 2018 World Series of Poker. And the story... Okay, so I busted out in 28th. And at the time when I busted, they went down to 27 players, which meant three tables left uh actually someone else busted at the same time as i did and so there were 26 players left but you get the point there are three tables left at that moment uh there was a, a prohibitive chip leader in the tournament by the name of michael dyer and that's what i want to focus uh this episode's strategy on is michael dyer having the not just a chip lead but you know with 
30 players left. He had something like 12% of the chips remaining in play. So he had something like four or five times the average stack, which is just huge at that point in the tournament with uh, only three, three or four tables remaining to have that many chips. Many of us uh, might not exactly know how to handle that situation. Right. I mean, well, look, you have so many chips, you could just fold every hand for the next several hours and probably just coast your way to the final table and just lock up a million dollars. You know, that was the minimum payout at this year's final table was over one million dollars just for getting ninth place. So that would actually be reasonable if you told me that, you know, look, with this many players left, I had so many chips. I just wanted to make sure that I got the million. And uh, that, I, I can't really argue with that because that is so much money to get uh, all at once. I, I couldn't blame someone for feeling that way. I don't play that way myself. Uh, and maybe I'm too aggressive when I have a chip lead late in a tournament. I know what it's like to be a short stack towards the end of a tournament, especially a big one like this, when everyone is looking up at the pay jumps you know what question have i gotten the most when i finished in 28th there was a big pay jump between 28th and 27th and as i've done a number of interviews about my bust out people ask me well did you ever consider trying to fold you know there was a pay jump of fifty thousand dollars between 28th place and 27th place did you think it might have been a good idea just to hang on and try to you know get that pay jump And I think, of course, the answer is yes, there is value. There's exactly $50,000 worth of value in doing exactly that. So I don't blame players that see tournament poker that way. Um, I just don't look at it that way. I'm not a big ICM guy, as most of you who have listened to other episodes uh, have probably gathered. I'm not a big ICM guy. By that I mean, look, if we were down to 28 players... And I knew that someone at either at my table or one of the other remaining tables had, uh, you know, less than one or two big blinds in his stack. Then of course I would fold and get that pay jump. Uh, so I'm not stupid about ICM. It's, it's, it's something that you have to consider as part of an overall strategy. But you have to remember, guys, the real value in the main event in particular is winning it. If you, so I didn't look at the pay jump between 28th and 27th as much as I looked at the pay jump between 28th and 1st. Because winning the main event, you go down in history, you get a lot of opportunities. Like I see John Sin is doing sponsorships and he's, you know, he's being asked to be a bounty in this event and, and they're paying him to do this charity thing all because he won. So you have to look at the main event a little bit differently. But even in other tournaments where you don't get all of these uh, tertiary benefits of being the, you know, the quote-unquote world champion, I think it's important to realize that most of the money goes to first place. And wherever possible, you should take advantage of the fact that other people are so worried about trying to get each and every pay jump, you could probably bully some of those players out of good decisions. And anytime you can leverage someone else's emotions, which includes his desire to win another $50,000, for example, uh, you should. 
because when players are are using emotion instead of logic and reasoning and just good solid strategy you have an advantage over them if you're not using your emotions as your guide so getting back to michael dyer our prohibitive favorite to win the tournament with you know anywhere from 30 players left down to where we're going to begin our coverage today when there were only two tables left in fact only 14 players left in the entire tournament uh I think he puts on a clinic here as far as how hard to press on the gas and put pressure on my opponent and how when my opponent tells me he's willing to fight, how to back off and and stop fighting. Uh, I think this is a very important late game concept as we approach the final table, uh, as we approach these big pay jumps at the end of a huge event like the main, uh, you have to know that there's a difference between being a big stack and using your leverage that you have as a result of that big stack and just spewing off all your chips. And we've seen over the years some memorable meltdowns and blow-ups where big, big stacks have just gone into the sewer because players made bad decisions. And uh, we need to know where... The right balance is, as in all things poker, there's a balance that we've got to try to find. And I learned a lot from watching Michael Dyer. So I want to start with a hand that he played. It's a, I love these kind of hands, small blind versus big blind. Uh, there are seven players at his table. There are 14 players left in the tournament. At this time, Michael Dyer in the small blind has 88 million chips. And the average stack was around 14 million. So to say that he <laughs> was killing it would be an understatement. This guy had 22% of all the chips in play. More than one-fifth of the chips in play with 14 players left. And in this hand, the player with the second largest stack in the tournament was in the big blind. With 33 million. So that lets you know exactly how big this stack was. Uh, an Australian player, I'm sorry that I forgot his first name, but his last name is Linsky, uh, is in the big blind. And so here we have the top two chip leaders out of the 14 remaining players, and they're in the blinds. Everyone folds to Michael Dyer. Now his table image has been what you might expect, an aggressive, uh, big stack bully kind of chip leader putting pressure on everybody, uh, knowing that everybody was trying to make the final table, knowing that players are thinking about pay jumps instead of winning. He's been taking advantage of that. Uh, in this hand, he has the 4-3 offsuit in the small blind, and he completes for 200K. So it's 200 and 400 with a 50 ante. So... Let's talk about this. Uh, some players never limp in the small blind. And I think that having a limping strategy is important. Uh, if everyone folds to me in the small blind, I'm going to have some hands, not many, but some hands that I'm just going to fold. And this would be just unplayable garbage, like 10 tray, jack four. I think it's okay if you're afraid that your opponent is going to call your raise a lot. And you're also afraid that 
he could uh, raise because he'll just see the limp as weakness. If you feel like he's going to be uh, exploiting you too much, then just by all means, resist the great pot odds that you're being offered. You know, in this situation, he's getting something like four to one on a call uh, with the blinds and antes and everything. Uh, I think it's fine to just throw hands like 10-4, jack-4, 10-deuce away uh, rather than calling and then having to fold when your aggressive opponent raises uh, too often. Even if he doesn't raise, like, what are you hoping to flop with 10-deuce? You know what I mean? So I'm fine with throwing some hands away. I wouldn't include 4-tray, by the way. I think this hand is a little too playable. Dyer can afford to call with this hand. And then if Linsky raises, it's Alex Linsky. I just remember the, the Australian pro's name. Alex Linsky. If he raises, I have options with my four tray. I mean, look at these stacks we have. The big blind is 400. Uh, I have 88 million. My opponent has 33 million. If he wants to play a pot, we can do things. Uh, we can call a, a modest raise and hope to flop a straight draw or an unexpected uh, big hand of some kind. Or just flop a, a, a bluffable flop and try to outplay him. Uh, there are, in other words, you don't have to auto fold just because it goes limp, raise, uh, small blind, big blind. With this hand, I'm okay with opening, uh, for a limp or opening for a raise. So Dyer open limps from the small blind and Linsky checks and we see a flop. I'm not going to reveal Linsky's hand yet. I know some of you probably haven't watched the coverage and I don't want to reveal what Michael Dyer is up against. I'd like us to play this hand through from his perspective, if that's all right. So the flop comes 10, 9, deuce, rainbow. Uh, we missed completely. Uh, maybe an ace on the turn would give us a gut shot. Uh, a five on the turn would give us an open ender. So we have some very, very remote backdoor possibilities. But ultimately... We are at the bottom of our range. And in fact, we flopped the nut low. 4-3 is the worst possible hand right now. Therefore, Dyer chooses to take a stab at this pot. Now, he's been doing this a lot. He's been stabbing at any pot that appears to be available uh, since he got the chip lead yesterday. Um uh, and it's been working out for him, obviously, or he wouldn't have 22% of the chips in play with 14 players left. Uh, so he leads for 425. I love this sizing. At the time, there was just about a million uh, in the pot. So he's giving himself a good price to hopefully take it down with this little bet. Just over the minimum bet of 400K, he bets 425. And Linsky calls. Now let's try to put Alex Linsky on a range. I mean, obviously, we know our four high isn't good, right? So we've got a call, which means he could have a 10. He could have a 9. He could have a deuce. Remember, Linsky didn't raise pre-flop, so he got to see the flop for free. It's even possible he's floating with garbage here, knowing that it's a blind versus blind situation. And also, in Linsky's shoes, I'd be thinking, Dyer shouldn't want to mess with me. There are so many much, much smaller stacks at the table for him to be picking on. The fact that he's betting now means he probably has something. Of course, we, the viewers, know that he has nothing. 
But I think in Linsky's shoes, the thought would cross my mind that uh, Dyer probably isn't betting with air as often as he would against one of the smaller stacks, right? Typical tournament strategy is why go to battle against another big stack when there are shorter... Actually, the best stacks to pick on are medium stacks. The ones that don't feel desperate, like we need to shove with any piece, but that don't, uh, that, that aren't big enough to really do damage in, in the event that we get involved somehow in a big pot. Uh, so Linsky makes the call and now we have to try to range him. I know what he had, so I'm not going to, uh, get too into it, but let's just say he could have a lot of hands. His call doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, Dyer should give up. The turn is the king of clubs. So now our board is 10-9 deuce on the flop and a king of clubs on the turn. By the way, the deuce on the flop was also a club. So for what it's worth, a backdoor flush draw has just appeared. Uh, in dire shoes with the four high and knowing that I can't possibly win this hand unless I bluff I still think I wouldn't bluff uh, I feel like I took my stab on the flop Linsky says he has something he's got a big stack I have a big stack there's no reason to keep putting pressure on him but let's look at the case for doing so uh, it's possible that Linsky had something like a pair of nines on the flop right he could have any two cards really and it's possible that he just called on the flop with second pair. Well, how much does he like this king? If he does have something like a modest one pair type hand, like a pair of nines or even a deuce, uh, it's very unlikely he can handle a, a ton of pressure. So this could be uh, a, a bet, bet, bet situation for Dyer. Having played passively pre-flop, now turning on the the engines, you know, firing up the engines and trying to get him to fold whatever he's uh, saying he has is a, a winning strategy but I'm not sure that I would employ that strategy here mostly because Linsky has probably noticed that I've been very 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 aggressive of late and it's unlikely he's going to give me credit for being able to beat a pair of nines and I just think it's too likely that this bet will get called so I'm not a fan of the bet but I definitely see the logic behind it Anyway, Dyer puts out 1.2 million into the pot of 2 million. So he has the nut low. He knows he can't win without betting. So GTO would suggest that this is the kind of hand we should put into our bluffing range. You want to be balanced. Uh, Dyer would like to have some bluffs here for those times when he actually flopped two pair or turn to king after having stabbed at the flop, and any number of value hands that would bet this amount. Uh, using your worst hands as bluffs is not a bad strategy. So that's the uh, argument. That's another part of the argument for betting. Again, uh, I don't know. I mean, this board is getting ugly. There uh, Versus a, a range that is literally any two cards, betting the flop is fine. But I think once you get called, you have to know when to, to ease up. Dyer is putting the pressure on Linsky here. 
and Linsky tanks for a while and makes the call. So now we have a big pot. Uh, let's see. The pot is now 4.4 million and the river card is the jack of spades. So no flush came in, but anyone with a queen has a straight and anyone who was hanging on tight with something like nine six is going to be very hard pressed to call another bet. So whereas I probably would not have bet the turn, if you'd force me to bet the turn, I think I would absolutely have to fire this river. Uh, it's just too good of a bluff card. It's too hard for Linsky to call, assuming he has something like a pair of nines, which is a reasonable hand to put him on after he's called twice. Dyer fires 2.6 million into the 4.4 million pot. So it's a healthy bet, a little over half the pot. Uh, Linsky is being offered almost three to one on a call. I'm now going to reveal Linsky's holding in this hand so that we can play together from his perspective. He's got the ten of hearts and the eight of clubs. So on the flop, he, he made top pair, which turned into second pair on the turn and is now third pair on the river. So the question is, Will I be able to call and win often enough to show a profit? Getting about three to one, we need to be good about 25% of the time. So the question is, is Dyer bluffing more often than that? Or value betting worse even more often than that? So I think it's really, really close. And typically when... I'm faced with a decision that I feel is really, really close. I tend to give action. In this case, if I'm Alex Linsky, I would probably fold because, uh, I mean, unless I had a read that Dyer was bluffing or something. I know I have a pair of tens. It was a great flop for my hand. Things have gotten uglier and uglier. And again, I'm the other chip leader. It's unlikely that my opponent is trying to bully someone who has a, an unbullyable stack, such as mine. So therefore, I think in Linsky's shoes, I would probably have just folded my 10-8 and then been angry when I saw it on TV. <laughs> now, as you know, they don't show every single hand on the ESPN coverage. So in this spot, who knows exactly how much of a bully Dyer had been. I know that from the hands they, they did show and from what I saw on Poker Go from that table, it appeared that uh, everyone was having to bow down to Michael Dyer quite often. So perhaps that went into Linsky's decision when he opted to call. Uh, I think Linsky just said, you know, I've had enough. It's a blind versus blind situation. My pair of 10s will be good often enough to win. And in this particular case, he was right. Uh, so that was, uh, to me, a very interesting hand for both players. Dyer's decision to limp in pre-flop. His stab on the flop is pretty uncontroversial, but for him to continue with the hand on both the turn and river against the second chip leader when he was the big stack shows uh, a lot of heart um, and also shows another way to approach being 
a big stack late in a big tournament. Oh, by the way, guys, I love when you tweet at, at Clayton Comic uh, and tag Tournament Poker Edge as well. Uh, I love when you guys disagree with things that I say. I don't pretend to be the best poker player in the world. I'm just the best stand-up comedian who also plays poker. <laughs> the best poker-playing comedian. I think I can claim that title maybe. But I will always have a lot to learn about this great game. And I love when people present alternate points of view. So if I ever say something on this podcast that you uh, take issue with and want to let me know how you feel, believe me, I'll always be respectful as long as you are. Let me know what you think. Let's get the dialogue going about some of these hands. Um, I can see many of you disagreeing with my opinions about this particular blind versus blind spot. Uh, let me know. Would you be able to call with just a pair of tens in that situation? I'd love to know what all of you think. So let's move on. About 30 or 40 minutes later, we're still at that 200, 400 uh, level with the 50 ante, and there's still 14 players left in the tournament. Uh, Dyer has continued uh, his relentless aggression. He did not let that hand uh, where he lost with four high slow him down at all. He's kept his foot on the gas. And here at a seven-handed table, he opens from the hijack with pocket deuces. He's got 87 million behind. So he, he lost that pot before, but obviously he won back a few chips. Uh, fold to the button. and. Uh, a player that I uh, had the misfortune of being seated with because he's so good. His name is Martin Garretts, and I hope that I pronounce his name correctly. I believe he's from Holland. He's an excellent, excellent and extremely aggressive player who doesn't seem to have much fear of losing at all. Uh, he 3-bets to $2.4 million. Now, I want to play this hand again from the perspective of Michael Dyer. And Garrett's having three bet on the button at this seven-handed table is now putting the pressure back on me with my pocket deuces. And I would say this pressure is further intensified by the fact that Garrett's... Uh, now, let's, let's do the numbers real quick. Uh, Dyer with 87 million behind opens to 800K with deuces. Garrett's three bets. I'm not going to reveal his hand just yet. And he's got only 18.5 million to start the hand. So, you know, I would say his M is 20. Um, you can say he's got in the neighborhood of 45 big blinds, however you want to view it. Uh, he's not exactly a big stack. And now that he's three bet to 2.4 million of his 18.5 million, uh, he's put in, I would say, a considerable portion of his stack and really sending a message that he has picked up a hand with which to do battle. Uh, folded all the way back to Dyer. And now we have a decision. Costs us 1.8 million to call. And I'm sorry, 1.6 million to call rather. And we're pretty much going to be set mining here. So, I don't know. Uh, 
we've got about, you know, the implied odds is what you want to look at when you choose whether or not to set mine. And in this situation, with Garrett's having put in 2.4, he's only got 16 million behind. It's basically uh, a 10 to 1 ratio of what I have to call and what I can win additional in Garrett's stack. I think it's totally fine to fold this hand. I also think it might be okay to three bet. Uh, I mean, I should say four bet in dire shoes. Really find out if Garrett's is just taking a stand on the button or whether uh, he has a hand. Uh, when you do that, obviously the plan is to fold to a shove. You're not going to put in 18 million with deuces, but I, I I think it's defensible to say, you know, six million from here. Uh, you don't really need to make a huge re-raise because uh, Garrett's is so short stacked compared to the pre-flop action. Um, Dyer calls, and I think it's questionable to do so. Certainly defensible, but I would prefer Garrett's have in the neighborhood of thirty million behind. Uh, were I to make this speculative, let's hope we hit a deuce uh, call. So the flop comes. Ace. Nine, four, rainbow. So not what Michael Dyer was hoping to see. Uh, the pot is 5.75 million. And Dyer needs to try to figure out what Garrett's three betting range looks like. And this is the problem with being out of position. I mean, here's the way I look at it. If I, if I make this call of 1.6 million more with my deuces, I can't only rely on hitting a deuce to win a pot. In other words, because I'm only getting 10 to 1 implied odds, I'm going to need to, th there will be times when I hit my deuce and don't uh, bust my opponent. So that doesn't really justify the call. So to make up for that fact and the fact that he's so short, I also need to win the pot uh, sometimes when I don't hit a deuce. So is this a flop that we should stab at? I don't know. I mean, if we think Garrett's three betting range is only big pairs and ace king, then maybe, yeah, uh, leading into him or going for a check raise on this flop is a winning strategy because he doesn't have that many hands that actually like the flop, although he's likely to see bet most of those hands on the flop. So Dyer plays in flow, checks to the raiser or to the, the player who re raised him pre flop, and Garrett's checks behind so the question now is does he do that with big hands like ace king uh any of the sets uh does he do that with pocket kings that won't fold no matter what we do uh i think garrett's check shows that he has something but that maybe he does not want to play for all of his stack um in other words, I think he has a somewhat capped range, save for perhaps the very, very top being the nuts pocket aces. So Dyer checks, and when Garrett checks behind, we see a turn card, which is the King of Hearts. So this is a bad card for, for Dyer, because some of the hands that Garrett's would choose uh, as part of his uh, pre-flop three-betting strategy love this king. Pocket Kings comes to mind. King Queen suited, uh, King Jack suited even at a seven handed table against a very aggressive player. I could see Garrett's going to war 
with a lot of hands that includes a king. So if he didn't outflop us, he may have just outturned us. And I think that Dyer should shut it down now. He bets 1.85 million into the 5.75 million pot. Dyer does. So the flop went check, check. And now Dyer takes a shot at this pot. The only thing I like about this bet is the sizing. Uh, I believe that Dyer got a little bit frisky here. Uh, certainly if Garrett's has pocket jacks, pocket tens, even pocket queens, he's probably going to fold. But, you know, save for those three betting hands and maybe when Garrett's was pre-flop bluffing with something like, you know, eight, seven of hearts or whatever, uh, this bet is just not going to get through very often. What I like about the sizing is it doesn't need to get through very often in order to show a profit. He's only betting a little bit less than one third of the pot. So it might be reasonable to think that we can win uh, that often and, and show a profit. Still, I wouldn't have done it. I would have saved those chips and pretty much given up on this hand, uh, given the board. Garrett's calls. And now... We, we have to give up, right? I mean, he's either got an ace or a king. He's not calling uh, with too many worse hands. And he's also not folding those hands if we fire again on the river. The river comes to five of diamonds for a final board of ace, nine, four, king, five. And there's no possible flush. And Dyer checks dutifully. And Garrett's checks behind, behind and wins the hand with Ace of Diamonds, Six of Hearts. So obviously, Garrett's had had about enough of Dyer's antics and chose the Ace-6 off to 3-bet. The problem with choosing this hand to put into your 3-betting range is that even when you flop an Ace, you end up playing the hand very cautiously and not maximizing your win potential. You see, Garrett's was afraid to bet the river with top pair uh, even though Dyer probably has some uh, worse hands to call with, because you know he's worried he could be outkicked, he's just worried. Uh, a six is probably not the best hand to three bet pre flop, but I definitely see why Garrett chose to to do so. Because look, guys, you can't just let the the big bully, big stack chip leader keep beating up your table. Garrett said, look, I have an ace on the button against a guy who's been opening almost every pot for the last two days. It's time to take a stand. I think he should have been more patient, picked a better hand, but it's certainly a defensible play. The problem, though, is that even when you flop an ace, you don't love your hand enough to bet it on the river and try to make a, a little bit more money. Maybe for fear of getting check-raised bluffed. And you know, that, for all those reasons, I probably just wouldn't have played the hand in Garrett's shoes. But as it turns out, he wins a, a, a pretty substantial pot for his stack size. And I'm sure he was very happy with the result. Now, I want to do one more, guys, because it's the very next hand. So uh, in this hand, Dyer is in second position. So whereas before he was in the hijack, which is third position or under the gun plus two, now he's under the gun plus one. Remember, we're only at a seven-handed table. And Dyer is now sitting on 82 million. 
and he's holding the queen nine offsuit. Now here's where I need to give this guy a lot of respect. You know, he's gotten beaten up a few times. Both of these hands that we've discussed already, Michael Dyer lost. But he was able to see uh, the situation for what it is. Nothing has changed. Despite losing these hands, uh, I'm still the prohibitive favorite to win the tournament. I have so many chips compared to the average, and I have way more chips than most of the guys at my particular table. So with that in mind, he chose to literally open any remotely playable hand from any position at this table. And I respect it because I don't know if I would have gotten a bit gun shy, you know, uh, chinks in the armor kind of thing. Like, do I really want to keep losing these chips little by little as we approach the final table? I think that uh, most of poker is evaluating the ratio between risk and reward. And in this particular spot, Michael Dyer said, look, these guys need hands to come after me. So they're probably not going to want to play a big pot against me. They see that I'm willing to keep firing. And when you do that, it just makes you much, much harder uh, to defend. So he opens from second position with the queen nine, makes it 800, which is just the minimum bet. That's all you need to do at this stage of the tournament. Any raise is uh, substantial. And he gets a call from a player named Rich Zhu. Now, Rich Zhu is actually the player who ended up taking the last of my chips in this tournament. So I try not to think about that as I watch him play. Now, I hope you lose. I don't do that. Uh, he's in the small blind. I don't want to reveal his hand yet, but I will say he has 13 million in chips. So Rich is sitting there with only 13 million. Uh, his M is around 14. He's got, uh, what do you want to do? 20. What is that? About 32 big blinds. So he's not exactly a big stack himself. And Rich Zhu actually has a below average stack in this situation. So now one thing that I've learned, especially in live tournaments, is that when a player flats with a medium short stack, from out of the small blind, it's never a marginal hand. I shouldn't say never, but it's very seldom a marginal hand. It's usually uh, a strong hand, maybe even a very, very strong hand because a lot of players like to trap with this stack size with that M of around 13 and 14, hoping to get some action from, this, from the big blind, maybe uh, doing this with pocket aces, pocket kings, it's kind of reasonable, decent spot to slow play given your uh, aggressive opponent and your stack size situation. You know, remember guys, positional disadvantage doesn't come as into play when we end up all in. So if, if he has a stack that could easily end up all in, say for example with a, a big check raise on the flop and then a bet on the turn, he's going to be all in. So who cares that he had to go first on the flop? It makes less of a difference. So the positional disadvantage is much more of a factor when we're deep stacked. The shorter you are, the less that actually matters. I don't want to reveal his hand, but I would just say that in uh, Michael Dyer's shoes, I would put Rich Zhu on uh, a pretty big hand, anywhere from a pretty big to a, a monster hand. And the big blind folds, and now we see a flop of 7, 6, 
five rainbow. Remember, we're holding the queen nine, so we have two over cards and a gut shot to a nine high straight. Uh, Zhu, remember, was a small blind, so he's first to act and checks. Now, I think he's going to check all of his hands here. I think he should be checking his entire range on this board. Uh, and then be looking to put in, when he has a, a big pair, like I said, he, I thought his range could include something like pocket aces. I think check raising and going with it is perfectly fine, despite the draw heavy nature of the board, 765. I just think that Dyer is going to go ballistic with a lot of his pair and straight draw combos, hands like 8-6, 8-7, even 5-4, would probably rightfully assume that he has a lot of equity uh, versus our small blind calling range and go crazy with such hands. And so therefore, I think when Zhu has a big pair like that, he should be check raising and looking to play for all of his chips. You know, if you got me beat, good for you. I didn't call with a bit with a monster out of the small blind with an M of 14 to just fold. I didn't do that. I don't do that. So Dyer bets 725 into the 2.3 million pot, which uh, is a very, very small bet, really designed to just uh, get Zhu to fold his worst hands. And to Dyer's dismay, Zhu calls. But this situation isn't as bad for Dyer as it may appear. Um, he will pick up a straight on the turn sometimes. So he can make a straight with an eight. He can also pick up a good bluff card, something like uh, a king maybe would be a good card for him to bluff sometimes. Uh, an ace might be a bluff card for for Dyer. Uh, so all is not lost, even when we get called on this flop. Obviously a queen or a nine would probably give Dyer the best hand if he doesn't have it already, which I think he never, almost never does. Again, I look at that. That To me, that small blind call with that stack size would set off some alarm bells like this guy has a hand. So, uh, again, I haven't told you what Zhu is playing with, and I've done that by design. The turn is the Ace of Hearts. So, Zhu had called 725 on the flop, and now there's 3.8 million in the pot, and the ace peels off. So we must ask ourselves, uh, so Zhu checks, and Dyer has to ask himself, do I have more aces in my range than my opponent does? Is it worth uh, betting again here on the turn? How many ace-high hands gave me action on the flop? And I think the answer is a lot of them. Because our sizing on the flop was so small, had Dyer bet closer to half pot or even a little bit bigger, I think we'd get hands like ace-jack, etc. to fold uh, just because we're starting to threaten the stack. And he only has ace-high. And it's a 7-6-5 flop, one that most players would be afraid of. So I think when we bet that small, it's harder to define our opponent's hand. So when Zhu checks and Dyer checks behind, I understand. Dyer's essentially giving up on this hand. And this is such an important concept when you're playing a big stack, when you're trying to be the chip leader bully 
you have to know when to shut it down. And I think that having been called on the flop when I took my little stab, well, actually, my first stab was pre-flop. Probably a lot of these hands were going raise and take it for Dyer. Uh, this one got to the small blind where he encountered resistance. Took a little stab on the flop. Zhu says he has something. Now, Zhu, by the way, is a California guy uh, in a members-only jacket somewhere around 50 years of age. And it kind of has a reputation for being a little sticky. So I don't blame Dyer for shutting it down at all. The river comes the king of hearts for a final board of seven, six, five, ace, king with three hearts. Zhu checks and Dyer gives up, checks behind. He's, you know, it, it could be a spot to bluff. I have the nut flush blocker with my queen of hearts. Uh, that's a pretty small minor consideration considering it came back door. Um, but I do have that blocker. I don't know. I, I think it's, I, I think I really like Dyer's decision to check behind here. And Zhu wins with ace 10 offsuit. One of the worst hands I think he'll have when he flats from the small blind. I think it's pretty much the bottom of his pre-flop calling range. It's right around ace 9, ace 10 offsuit. Uh, so nice play by Dyer not to lose any more chips bluffing into this guy. Obviously, he's not going anywhere. One more, real quick. Two hands later, actually more than two. It was uh, one, two, three, four hands later. Dyer is now on the button. Uh, he opens, I folded to him on the button, and he's got 82 million behind. He opens to 800,000 with the eight six of hearts. Our good friend, Alex Linsky is in the small blind on our immediate left and three bets to 3.2 million. So the opening bet to 800 and now the three bet to 3.2 million out of the small blind. And uh, the Aussie has plenty of chips. He's got over 40 million. We have 82 million. He's got 40 million. We are two of the biggest stacks left in the tournament. Obviously, Dyer still the chip leader in the tournament, and it's not even close. Dyer chooses to fold the suited 8-6 here versus the 3-bet from Alex Linsky in the small blind, getting 2-1 to one on a call with what most of us would view as a fairly playable hand deep stacked and having the button. I think many of us would call 2.4 million to see a flop with this hand. And I really love Dyer's decision to fold it. You know, Alex Linsky had three bet earlier to a much smaller amount, which may have entered into our decision. Uh, also, just why? You know, what happens if I flop a top pair of eights and it's no good and then I end up losing a bunch of chips because I got stubborn with top pair when my opponent had told me pre-flop he had a big hand? I'm going to now reveal that Alex Linsky had pocket aces, which really makes this fold look good. Even though 8-6 of hearts is not a bad hand to take up against pocket aces, you've got to consider the overall situation. 14 players left in the main event. I've got this big stack. I don't have to get involved in every single hand. There's nothing wrong with raising from the button and then folding to the 3-bet 
especially at a table where I haven't been encountering that much resistance. A little bit here, a little bit there, but for the most part, Michael Dyer's been having his way with this table. So I like his decision to fold and not get involved in a difficult situation against a pre-flop three bet from another big stack. So that's going to do it for this episode, guys. Uh, we, we don't get to see what happens throughout this uh, episode. We've been talking about the main event with 14 players left. Uh, maybe in an in a upcoming episode soon, we can get down to that final table and talk about how players ended up making the final table, something most of us will only ever dream of doing. Although I've come fairly close a few times in the big picture, I haven't really come that close at all. So guys, thanks so much for listening. Please, please, please give us a rating on iTunes if that's where you listen. Stitcher, Podbean. We love comments. We love follows. We love retweets. And I love interacting on Twitter at Clayton Comic at C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-C-O-M-I-C on Twitter. And look forward to hearing from all of you in the coming weeks. Uh, so for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge... Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Clayton Fletcher. I wanna hold them like they do in Texas, please. Fold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me. Nobody